If you would turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10, our scripture reading will be verses 1 through 14, though the whole chapter would be worthy of our reading, but uh, we'll read 1 through 14. And following the reading of scripture, we'll sing together the Gloria Patri. Please stand together for the reading of God's holy word. Hear now God's God's holy word. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to God. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of, of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But then this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen. We have comfort in, the, in, in our God and how... What do we need to know that having that comfort, comfort, we might live and die happily? Well, we need to know uh, the depth of our sin and misery, which we've been thinking about the last few Lord's days. But then we need to know how we can be delivered from our sin and misery. And that's what we embark on today, beginning with Lord's Day number five, the four questions, 12, 13, 14, and 15. And again, Herman Huxema gives us a very helpful outline just to organize our thinking. Uh, question 12, the first point is the necessity of satisfaction. That is, God's justice must be satisfied. Uh, questions 13 and 14 are the impossibility of satisfaction. That is, there is nothing that you or I could do or any other creature can do to satisfy uh, the just and holy wrath of God. And then the third point and the third, the last question, question 15, is the 
possibility of satisfaction? Is there a remedy? And the question 15 anticipates or begins to talk about the possibility that uh, the justice of God might be satisfied. So we come to question 12, and it, it goes is the, the, emphasizing the necessity of satisfaction. The question is, since then, in the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? So having put forward the uh, clarity of our sin and our misery and the, the depth that we have in that and our, uh, the miserable nature of it, the, uh, we come to uh, the question, well, can we, in the punishment that we're due because of that, is there any remedy? Can we be delivered from that? And at first glance, it might seem like that's the question of the unconverted. How can they make continuing sin with impunity and yet escape the consequences of God's justice? But I think we see something quite different here. Uh, it's not the question of the unbeliever. It's the question of, the, of someone in whom the Spirit of God is at work in how we might be delivered rightly from the justice of God's just punishment. And so there's two things we see in the, the question that I think bring out this point that it's a different kind of question than we've been dealing with in this catechism. The first is that it's an honest acknowledgement of, of our, the guilt of our sin. In the righteousness of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. That's not a, that's not a question or that's not a statement a non-Christian is going to stay. Uh, they will be willing to admit, well, I make mistakes. I do the wrong things. But they would never admit to the fact that they deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Something they would not do. There's something different about this person or this question. Turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. It's a great prayer of confession of David. After his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah the Hittite. He gives an open and honest confession of sin. And uh, keep, keep your place here once we've read these first couple verses because we'll stay with it for a few moments. In Psalm 51, verse 3, For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. That's something a non-Christian will never say. But if the Spirit of God is at work in your heart, then you bow before the Lord and you recognize, Lord, I have sinned against you. And I do not deserve your mercy. I deserve your wrath. There's an it begins with an honest confession of his sin. And that's very significant uh, for us to hear in the question. 
He then asks for a couple things. He says, is there no way by which we may escape that punishment? In other words, is there a way of deliverance from the justice of God's holy wrath against our sin? Well, that's natural and that's appropriate. It's a fine question. It's a good question. It's a question we need to ask and can ask. There's nothing wrong with that. Not to sin with impunity, but, but there's, a, there's a problem we have and we, need, we want, to, want to see if there's a remedy of it. But then he adds something that's so significant because he says, and be again received into favor. See, he doesn't simply want to be removed from the punishment of sin. He wants to be restored to fellowship with God. That again is something that a non-Christian will never ask. But that's his desire. That's the questioner's desire. I want to be restored into fellowship with God. And so there in Psalm 51, verse 10, he says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. The desire of his heart is to be back in fellowship with God. That's true repentance. That's an honest acknowledgement. He's not trying to evade responsibility or evade accountability, but he wants to find the way of being restored into the fellowship of God. You know, we have those enjoyable conversations about thinking when we go to be with the Lord, what loved ones we will see that have gone on before us and we sometimes make the comments, well, I have a question I want to ask Moses. And when I get to heaven, I want to ask him that question or Paul or somebody else. And the reality is there's only one person we want to see in glory, and that's Christ. And when we get to glory and we see him, I don't care what Moses said or did. I'm not worried about Paul explaining anything. We want to be with Christ. We want to be in fellowship with our God. That's what we want. And we'll enjoy doing it with all of our loved ones and the other friends and so forth that are there. But the person that's dominating our view is Christ. He's the one we want to see. He's the one we want to be with. And that's what this man is asking. I want to be restored to fellowship with God. That's that's the horrible thing about sin is it separates you from God. Well, in the answer, and there are two things we see in the answer. The one is the, the, the acknowledgement that God's justice must be satisfied. Uh, the answer, God will have his justice satisfied. It has to be satisfied. Uh, and therefore, we must make this full satisfaction either by ourselves or by another. So two things in that answer. One is this, the justice of God has to be satisfied. He cannot wink at sin. He cannot ignore sin or he would no longer be God. And part of the work of the gospel is convicting us of sin. Bringing us to our knees before him. 
In Exodus 23, 7, God says, I will not justify the wicked or acquit them. God cannot ignore sin. He, it has to be dealt with. And there are two ways that it can be dealt with that this answer gives us. We either have to make full satisfaction ourselves or it has to be made by another. Well, the reality is we cannot make full satisfaction ourselves. We will never be able to do that. And the questions are going to pursue, well, what about another? The catechism is driving us again to see the hopelessness that we have of ever satisfying uh, the just wrath of God. We can't do it. Can't accomplish it. And he drives home the reality, the impossibility of our satisfying God's divine justice in questions 13 and 14. So question 13, building on this first, the necessity of satisfaction here, the impossibility of it, it's can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? And he says, by no means. But on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. There is no way you can repair the, repay the debt to God. Uh, you have sinned against an infinite being, and so you have an infinite debt. And you have not enough resources even if you were completely perfect, if you could from this day live a perfect life, the rest of your life, you would still have a debt that you could not pay. And the, the catechism reminds us, but in fact, we are increasing our debt every day. We're accumulating that debt. It's getting bigger and bigger all the time. Uh, an infinite debt becoming more infinite. It boggles the mind, but it's the immensity of what we owe. And there's no way that you and I can remedy that debt. Uh, the debt past, present, and future must be paid. Our hymn writers help us thinking about this. Augustus, top lady in Rock of Ages, not the labors of my hands, can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And Horatius Bonar, great Scottish minister of the 19th century, in his hymn, Not What My Hands Have Done, he writes, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh is born can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. 
my hands are really full of uncleanness. There's nothing in my hands that I can bring to God that he that can remedy the hopelessness of my inability to satisfy the just and holy wrath of God. And so the, he goes to another remedy. What about another man, a righteous man? What about another creature? Can they satisfy? And that's the, the question, question 14. Can there be found anyone, uh, any, anywhere, one who is a mere creature able to satisfy for us? Uh, turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 6, verse 6. Micah, minor prophet, coming after Jonah. Kind of, old, kind of early on in the, in the minor prophets. Or in the middle of it. Micah, chapter 6. In verse 6. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So the answer uh, begins, or the the question, uh, or our reflection begins in thinking about another human being. Can another human being, a mere man, a mere creature, satisfy the just uh, the justice of God's holy wrath against my sin? And this is what Micah's reflecting on, or what the people of Israel are reflecting. Well, can I bring these things and somehow win peace with God? Uh, Can I bring the firstborn of my transgression? What greater sacrifice could a parent offer than to sacrifice their own child in the fire uh, to God to pay the penalty for his sin that he might be forgiven for his sin? Can another man, can another person, now in this case, could this... Could this supreme sacrifice satisfy for my sin? And it's like G.I. Williamson, our friend years ago preaching to us, said, how does God think about that kind of a sacrifice? Of course, he hates it. But why does he refuse such a tremendous sacrifice? It's because it's not good enough. It's not good enough to pay the price for our sin. Only the blood of the Son of God can pay the penalty for our sin. No man, no mere creature, even a righteous man, can stand in for us. Uh, If there were to be found uh, an absolutely perfect man, perfect person, even though we know from Scripture there is none righteous, no, not one. Uh, there's no one who does good, not even one. There is no such thing as the perfect man. But even if there were a perfect man, 
He couldn't be a true substitute for us because at the most he could maybe atone for one person. But even then that wouldn't work because he could not bear the holy wrath of an eternal God against our sin. He would be consumed by it. He would be destroyed by it. He couldn't bear it and pay the penalty of it. So no mere man can satisfy for our debt. It's the impossibility of that. But then he brings up, or Micah does, what about burnt offerings? What about thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Well, surely that would please God. All these animal sacrifices... And the answer is, no, he's not even going to like that. Uh, Turn back again to Hebrews chapter 10. And we'll review what we read earlier. The answer, as you're turning there, just to remind you of that, can another mere creature satisfy for us? None, for God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man has committed And further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and so so as to deliver others from it. And we have here in Hebrews 10, verses 3 and 4, again, a reminder of the animal sacrifices. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Even though God ordained these animal sacrifices, he ordained them as a, as a symbol, as a picture of the ultimate sacrifice that was going to come. But those sacrifices cannot in any way take away sin. That's why they had to be repeated. If they could take away sin, then once they were made, you wouldn't have to redo them, but you had to redo them every day, every year, for the rest of your life. They will never, it's impossible for them to take away your sin. So then we come to question 15 where he begins to open the door of the possibility of satisfaction. In verse 15, the question 15 is, what sort of a mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? And the answer is one who is truly man and perfectly righteous and yet more powerful than all the creatures That is one who is also truly God. Here's a general description of the mediator and it will be spelled out in greater detail in the questions to come. But there are four phrases here, but there are two truths that he's underscoring. He must first of all be truly man and perfectly righteous. And he must be more powerful than any creature and thus truly God. So he has to be truly man and truly God. Those two natures in one person alone could be a mediator who could satisfy the wrath of God against our sins. So you're still hopefully in Hebrews 10, verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. God had provided a body. He's going to be truly man, the mediator. 
And if you look back to earlier in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, he brings out the necessity of his being a man, that the mediator would be a man. In Hebrews 2 verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus had to be born. He had to be born of a virgin. Uh, He had to be truly man so that he could obey and suffer in our nature. Only that kind of a mediator can satisfy the justice of God for our sin. And there's so many places in the New Testament we could go to, but the the reminder in uh, another part of Hebrews is this this true man, this one who is truly man, is also righteous. He is holy, harmless, and undefiled. Uh exalted above the heavens. He's blameless, he's pure, he's righteous. Jesus is such a person. And then the second element is he must be uh, truly God. And this is the message really of the entire New Testament is teaching us the reality not not only of Jesus' humanity, but of his deity. Uh, Why is it that the Jewish authorities hated him so? It's because he made himself to be God, because he was God. Uh, From the very beginning, uh, when the message of the angel to Joseph, uh, you're going to call his name Jesus uh, because he will save his people from their sin, and then quoting Isaiah 7.14 about him being born of a virgin, and that he will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, Jesus came in the flesh, but he's God. In in Philippians 2, Paul says, Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be held on to at all costs, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. He had to be a man, but he also had to be God. Truly man, truly God in one person, because in him and him alone... Could the wrath of God be satisfied? As we look in Isaiah chapter 53, though the Father, go, though God makes him an offering for sin, he will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. That's the mediator we look for. 
That's the mediator we need. He is our only hope. And so these questions drive us to accept the necessity of satisfaction. God's justice must be satisfied. To accept the impossibility of satisfaction in us or in any other creature. But to push us in hope to look to the Redeemer, the Mediator, uh, who is God and man in one person. And it's in him God's wrath can be satisfied. And again, going back to the hymn. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save thine, no other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. Look to him as alone the sacrifice that satisfies for your sin. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do worship and adore you and thank you for the reminder of our desperate need in your presence. Lord, we know that that's the first work of the gospel to drive us to our knees. Thank you for providing a redeemer a mediator who can stand in our stead. May you, O Father, help us to look to him and hope in him for your redemption and your peace. And we pray, O Lord, that you would be glorified through Christ our Lord. Amen.